The last uh, couple of weeks we've been talking about courageous faith and uh, looking a little bit at the early church and their boldness and uh, some attributes of this church, the call that they were called out to in Acts 1-8. And uh, our, our, our Father in heaven didn't send them out without a little help. He said, I'm, you're going to receive power when I send you out. We often think of courageous faith as, as uh, doing something big time, bold, being loud, letting everybody know about Jesus. Uh, but we're called all throughout Scripture uh, to, to live lives of worship. And part of this courageous faith journey that we're all on is it's an everyday choice, a conversation-by-conversation conversation choice, a, a, a preference choice, whatever it may be, uh, to walk through this journey uh, saying, Jesus, I'm going to live my life in such a way before you um, that surrenders unto you. So today, um, we have somebody that can speak on this subject way better than me of what worship as a lifestyle really looks like. So let's uh, welcome Anson. As, uh, he's going to come up and preach to us. So we have a lot of things to talk about this morning and not a whole lot of time to talk about them. So we're going to jump right into our text for today. Our text for today is going to be Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. If you brought your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible with you, it'll be on the Sky Bible behind me. Let's read through this. Now as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So that's going to be our text for this morning, a lifestyle of worship. That's what we're talking about. We'll come back and revisit it a couple more times. Uh, but before we get too deep into this talk, I think we need to define terms so that you and I are on the same page. One of the first terms that we're going to define, and really the only one, I had another one, but if I don't bomb too hard today, maybe I'll get to come back later and tell you about it. But today, we're just going to be focusing in on worship. Our definition of worship that we're going to be working from this morning is any informed response to who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, or what he will do. This is not the Webster's Dictionary definition of worship. This is one that I came up with when I was in school forming my own theology of worship. Um, but if you were to look it up in the dictionary, you would just find a generalized definition of what the word worship means. But we need one that is specific for our lives and the lives that we live as Jesus followers. So this is our definition we're working from today. All right? Burn that into your brain. I'll put it up on the screen one more time before we move on. But if you'll notice, there's literally nothing in that definition about music whatsoever. If you were like me and like most people, I think, you probably grew up in a church tradition that taught you that worship is the music part of the service, or worship is you listening to worship music outside of church. Worship, but it's like, it has to do with music, right? That's what a lot of people thought. Well, yeah, I mean, it has to do with music, but it's not only to do with music. Worship extends far and beyond 
the platform where worship music is played or the churches where it's sung or your cars where you listen to Christian radio. In fact, worship really has nothing to do with music at all other than music having it be a tool or a conduit for worship to take place. And if some of you have maybe been let in on the little secret that worship is more than just music, you're probably sitting there right now and you're like, I know, it's a, I know what worship is. It's like reading your Bible, listening to the sermon, singing, praying. It's doing all that spiritual churchy stuff. You'd be right again, but it's still not the whole thing. This morning, we're going to be talking about worship as a lifestyle, as an all-encompassing thing that reaches every single area and aspect of your existence. And that's not a suggestion, and it's not a maybe, hey, what if this is the way that it is? I'm telling you, it is the way that it is. We're going to look at it this morning. But before we do that, I have a question that we kind of need to work through. Because in order to talk about worship as a lifestyle, I think we need to talk about what kind of things are kind of in the way of that. Because as a concept, it's like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. But I think we could all pretty much admit that that's not the way that we live our lives. You know, I mean, it's just not. We have our church life and we have our, you know, out there life. And I think part of it is because we live in a world right now that in 2019, if you haven't noticed, is a little bit, like, polarized and divided. And it seems like everyone's fighting about virtually anything and everything all of the time. If you just grabbed an issue out of a hat and threw it out there, you'd have people that are on the opposing and for the supporting sides. And the thing about being human is that everyone who believes that whatever said thing is right, they believe that because they believe in their hearts that it's the right thing to believe. And everyone who's on the opposing side, they oppose it because they believe in their hearts that it's the right thing to believe. And the reason that we're like this is because every single one of us has what we call preferences. And preferences are nothing more than you being predisposed to one thing over another. Or you prefer one option more than other options. And preferences aren't a bad thing on their own. Preferences are the thing that makes you, you. It's what makes you like the food that you like. It's what makes you wear the clothes that you wear, listen to the music that you do, go to this service or the nine o'clock service. It's the thing that makes you drive the car that you like if you're so fortunate to be able to like pick what kind of car you drive. I'm not really that fortunate, but maybe one day. Um, preference is the thing that shapes you and makes you unique. Contrary to popular belief, you live a unique existence that is unique to you. And every single aspect and part of your existence and how you've been raised and grown up helps shape you into the person that you are right now. And what happens is that you form preferences and things in your heart that are convictions, things that you believe. We just had a spotlight go out. Um, and all of those things, they, they go around inside of you and make you view the world a certain way. But what happens eventually is that you start encountering people that have similar preferences as you. Or in some cases, they have the same preferences as you. And those are the best kinds of feelings. Because... What eventually happens is if you find enough people like that, you form what has commonly been referred to as a congregation. That's what we are right now. We're a group of people that are united under a, a unified goal, and we're all moving in the same direction. 
we have similar preferences, but probably not the same. We're all very different people. But when it comes to worship or when it comes to church, we are unified under the person of Jesus. And so we're moving in the same direction. The problem is that we're not really necessarily conflict-averse as human beings. It's almost like we seek it out. If you just put a bunch of people into a room together that all agreed about everything, in about an hour, they'd be at each other's throats about something if you just gave them some topics of conversation because everyone has strong opinions and beliefs about every single aspect of their lives. But here is the first problem. By show of hands, how many of us have heard more than five messages specifically about worship in your lifetime in a normal church service? Okay, okay. That's better than I was hoping for, but here's the problem. It's not all of you. It's not 100%. Worship is something that we're doing every single week when we come together as a church, but more than that, it's something that you are doing every single day of your life, and we have been vastly misinformed about what worship is. We may hear worship messages, you know, throughout our time being in church that tell us, you know, tips and tricks on what, you know, singing looks like and praise and all this other stuff. But what I am trying to get us to understand today is that literally none of that matters unless your lifestyle of worship outside of this church is on lock. So let's move on. The next thing that I want us to look at is one of the reasons that we, you know, kind of we hesitate to accept this idea that worship is a lifestyle is because we operate based on the idea that we live in a life or an existence where the secular is separate from the sacred. Where when we cross through the doors of church and we come into church, everything we're doing here is sacred. It's churchy stuff, it's Christian-y stuff, but out there when I'm living my life, that's just my life stuff. It's not like I'm, you know, talking to Jesus all day long and he's, you know, the good angel on my shoulder telling me everything I should do. That's just not the way that we live our lives. But I would pose to you that as people that know Jesus Christ and have been changed by Jesus, you carry the spirit of Jesus with you into every single space that you occupy. And it's not an option and it's not a choice. It is the way that it is. And so... What that means is that as you encounter these other people in the world that have different preferences or different beliefs or convictions as you, those things come into conflict with the things that you prefer and can hinder your lifestyle of worship. We see in Romans 12, too, that Paul is writing to the Roman church, and he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. You see, oftentimes as Christians, we naturally gravitate towards this idea that transformation in our lives looks like behavior modification, or it just looks like us changing our behavior. The way that we can know that we're saved is because we look at the way that we used to act before we knew Jesus, and now we are who we are right now, and those are, you know, marginally different, and so, hey, I'm in the clear. I know Jesus. But that's not what Paul says. He says, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. You are transformed into a different person than you used to be by changing the way that you think. God is not after you faking your way through a life 
doing the things that look like you've been changed or look like you've been transformed. He wants you to be legitimately transformed by the way that you think. So, question number one, do our preferences pose a problem to our worship? I think that's what, you know, everyone's kind of waiting for is for me to say, all right, you guys need to abandon ship, you know, get rid of all your preferences. Preferences are the, are the thing that are holding you down, they're holding you back. That's not what I'm here to tell you today. I don't think preferences on their own are something that is ruining your worship. So, what is? I would say that this is the number one culprit. Pride. Pride is the number one thing that will hold back and choke your lifestyle of worship. Pride is one of the most difficult things to identify when it's entered into our heart because it's the sin that looks least like sin but will destroy you the fastest. And we justify it so easily. We say, I'm not prideful, I'm just driven. Or, I'm not prideful, I'm just opinionated. Or, I'm not prideful, they're just weak-willed and I'm a more, you know, hard-headed person. Or, I'm not prideful, I'm just right. Woo! Isn't that one we use all the time? You're like, I'm not being prideful. I'm just right about this thing, and you're wrong, and that's the way that it is. Pride makes us not able to listen to other people. Pride makes us slow to listen. It makes us quick to speak and quick to get angry. Pride makes us argue and complain with other people. Pride makes us huddle in our group of people that all have the same preferences and talk about people that don't have the same preferences. Pride makes you have conflict among people that you love and you care about. Pride isolates you and gets you alone, convinces you that it's your only friend and your only way to reshape your world in the way that you see right. Pride makes us ignore passages like James 1.19. Understand this, my brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Or Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Or Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Pride turns all of these around. And it's so tricky because it makes us feel okay with that. I'm here to tell you today, if you have to ignore parts of the Bible to justify your behavior, there is a good chance that pride is in the driver's seat and not Jesus. If you have to ignore parts of the Bible to justify your behavior, there's a good chance that pride is in the driver's seat and not Jesus. So, we've talked about all that stuff, and you're probably sitting there like, this is not really connecting. You said we were talking about worship. We've been talking about all this other stuff. Here's where it's going to start to connect. As we interact with the world around us, your church around us, your family around you, literally any other person besides yourself, your lifestyle of worship will have to, it has to, interact with every other preference that you carry in your life. And I will tell you, if pride is infecting your preferences in other spaces of your life, 
it will edge out your ability to worship Jesus over other things. Pride cannot coexist in a heart that desires to worship Jesus. It will have 100% of your attention so long as you leave it unchecked. This is something that I am dealing with in my life all the time. This is something that I've been dealing with in my life for years. And it's only something that I've known was a problem for about three years. And when I discovered that it was a problem, I just kind of, you know, went around blindly bumping into every problem in life until I came up with this idea to repeat to myself often. And we're going to say it here together. Say, I have a problem. Say it. I have a problem. And I need to change. All together now. I have a problem. And I need to change. This is the thing that I'm telling myself all the time. Because it is unnecessary for me, and it's, ir- it's unrealistic for me to expect the world to bow to my will when my worship life comes into conflict with my preference. I cannot look at the world around me and say, you have to change because I want it that way. That is childish. But that is how we live, is it not? We come up against things where our preferences are not only being not met, but they're being violated, and we can't just let it go and say, well, this person doesn't know Jesus. Why would they act any other way? But we say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong, and here's why you're wrong, and you need to agree with me. You've got to agree with me. But I'm here to tell you today that a lifestyle of worshiping Jesus does not include you getting every single thing the way that you want. It includes you living in a life designed in Jesus' image, not our own. So let's revisit our passage today. We're going to go ahead and skip ahead to uh, verse 39. So Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house, and it says, Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So here's my question to you today. Why is Martha wrong here? As we read this story, why is Martha wrong? I think for years, as you, you know, kind of unpack this story, the takeaway for a lot of people has been, well, if you're too busy, you miss out on Jesus. And that's kind of like the big picture takeaway from this story in the Bible. And again, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I think we could get more out of it if we looked a little bit deeper into the passage. Here we find Jesus who stops in a house and he's teaching in some part of the house. And Mary is sitting at his feet listening to what he has to say. While Martha is working super hard preparing this big meal. And I'm sure there's probably some of you in here right now, as you're hearing this story, you're like, can relate. I can't relate. I'm not the one that works on the big meal. I'm not very good at cooking. But there's others of you in here, like maybe if my mom was here, she'd be like, right here. My mom works super hard around the house. And sometimes she has a quick fire temper if we're just kind of sitting around not doing anything, not helping her, and she's working her tail off. You know what I mean? 
But that's not really even the problem that we see here either. Here, we see Mary has decided to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to what he has to say as an act of worship. And we see Martha. And our initial instinct is to say, well, Martha's wrong because she's missing out on an opportunity to worship Jesus. I don't think that that's the whole picture. I think the problem is that we find Martha, and she has an opportunity to worship Jesus through her service by preparing this big meal for them. I don't think if the story would have continued, we would have seen Jesus, you know, finish up his teaching. Martha had never, you know, butted into this conversation and just kept cooking, and Jesus goes in there and it goes, by the way, I know you've been working super hard in here, but you were wrong to do that. I don't really think that's where the story would have gone. But what we see is we see Martha forsake an opportunity to worship Jesus through her service because not only are her preferences not being met, they're being violated, and she can't handle it. Pride is riding shotgun in her heart, and it's telling her, hey, you're working in here super hard. No one else is in here helping you. The only other person that should be helping you is just sitting in there. And so what's Martha do? She goes into what I imagine is the living room or the dining room, and she bypasses Mary, the person she has a problem with. That's a key to help you know when pride is running your heart. If you have the opportunity to confront the person you have a problem with, but you sidestep them to go to a different person, that's usually pride. And so she sidesteps Mary and goes to Jesus, the person that she sees as the one who could have the authority to tell Mary what to do. And she says, Jesus, I have been cooking in there, slaving away. And Mary's not only not helping me, you're not telling her to come help me. Tell her to come help me. And Jesus says, my dear Martha, you are worried and, cons- and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. As I dug into this passage this week, it was interesting. The word that is used for worried in the phrase, you are worried and upset over all these details, is a word that in other parts of Scripture is used to describe the idea of being anxious about promoting one's interests. Being anxious about promoting one's interests. This betrays the posture of Martha's heart. She is concerned about cooking this big meal and having everything be just right for Jesus. But not only that, she feels that it is an okay thing to do to go and interrupt Jesus while he's preaching in order to complain to him that Mary isn't doing what she thinks Mary should be doing. This is pride as an obstacle to worship in the most perfect example. And on the flip side of that, where Jesus says, there's only one thing worth being concerned about, Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. In other translations, that reads something along the lines of, there's only one thing that is necessary. And that word for necessary is a word that is used in other parts of Scripture to describe what is needed as sustenance for a long journey. Or in other parts, the only thing, the only thing that is needed to sustain life. 
This is the word that is used to describe what Mary has found. Martha isn't just wrong because she's too busy that she's missing out on Jesus. She has an opportunity to worship Jesus and chooses not to, and instead to act in sin because pride has infected her preferences. So, Mary, or Martha has a problem, and she needs to change. I have a problem. I need to change. You have a problem, and you need to change. We're going to get into a little bit of a controversial thing right here. Please don't start screaming or ripping your hair out or running out of the room. We're just going to jump right into it so you don't have enough time to leave. Here we go. How many of you guys, by show of hands, like Grater's ice cream? I don't like Grater's ice cream. I, yeah, you, you got it, Pat. You know. Grater's ice cream, I think, is just like a giant prank where they're just buying like normal ice cream from the freezer section at Kroger and they're putting it in fancy packages and selling it to you and you're gladly paying six bucks a bowl for it or whatever. I don't think it's that good. I think it's massively overhyped. I don't like it, all right? That's what you need to know about me before we jump into this story. So here's the story. If I had a group of friends and they all wanted to get together and to spend some time and to hang out, and they all wanted to go to Grater's Ice Cream, right? And I don't like Grater's Ice Cream. That's my preference. I literally would prefer anything else ever on planet Earth, period, except for Grater's Ice Cream, all right? That's my preference. But they want to go there because they like it. Well, my preference tells me, hey, Anson, you don't like Grater's Ice Cream, but my love and care for my friends tells me, yeah, but it's just ice cream, and these are my friends. I'm going to go, and I'm going to forsake my preference, because to me, spending time with people that I love and that I care about is more important than getting what I want with ice cream. On the flip side of that story, if I had a group of friends, and they wanted to get together, and they wanted to go to Grater's Ice Cream, but pride has infected my preferences, I'd start having this internal conversation where I say, why would they say to go to Grater's? They know I don't like Grater's. I know they like it, but they know that I don't like it. Why would they suggest a place that I don't like? Why don't we just go to a place that none of us really like it that much? That way, we're all miserable together, and pride is just having that internal conversation with me. And so instead of just toughing it out and going to Grater's and spending time with people that I love and care about, I say, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to go to Cold Stone or literally anywhere else, and I'm going to have the ice cream that I like because I don't like the ice cream at Grater's. That is crazy. That story that I just laid out for you, that is hypothetically a crazy story. If you knew a person that was like that, you'd be like, what is wrong with you? Why? Why is that a, rea- a reaction to that story? Because people are more important than ice cream. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but it's true. People are more important than ice cream. And as crazy as that sounds, we do it every day. That's what we do with Jesus. That's what we do with God. We have the opportunity, it's right in front of us, to worship, to live a lifestyle of worship, to have every area and aspect of our lives shaped by who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Remember, our definition of worship is any informed response. Any informed response to who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And so when I come before God and I say, God, I wish that I could worship you right now, but I can't because it's too hot in here. 
Or, God, I wish I could worship you right now, but there's this person on Facebook, and they're being really ignorant and saying all the stuff I disagree with, and I can't let it go. I got to tell them they're wrong. They got to know that I'm right, and I can't act like Jesus right now because I'm right, and they're wrong. Or, Jesus, I can't worship you right now because this song is too boring and repetitive. I can't worship you right now because the lights are too dark or it's too bright. I can't worship you right now because I don't like the carpet. I don't like the paint. I don't like these big black things back here. Jesus, I can't worship you right now because pews are uncomfortable. Jesus, I can't worship you right now because I like hymns more than modern songs. Jesus, I can't worship you right now because I like modern songs more than hymns. All of these things, every single one of them, are as crazy as saying, I won't go spend time with human beings that I love and care about because they don't like the same kind of ice cream that I like. God sits up here, transcendent, above every single thing that we have a preference for. But when we come before God and we say, God, I can't do it. There's this thing in my way. What we've done is we've elevated that thing to the position of God. And we've said, this thing, whatever it is, is more worthy of my worship and attention than God is in this moment. If I cannot overcome it to get to a place of worship, that means that this thing is now the thing that I worship. This is why it's important to talk about preference, pride, and the rest of your life when it comes to a lifestyle of worship. Because worship doesn't just happen here. It has to happen other places. It happens in the way that you talk to your kids, the way that you talk to their teachers, the way that you talk to waitstaff at restaurants or grocers or people that are carting your carts at Kroger, people that cut you off on the road, the people that disagree with you on Facebook, everyone, all of it. Any informed response to who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do, that is worship. And that can happen anywhere at any time. And so you say, all right, Anson, so what's the point? I got a problem. What do I do about that? Well, first of all, you have to identify it and say, I have a problem and I need to change. Take responsibility for the way that you feel right now. I have a problem and I need to change. But the way that you fix it is that you recognize that pride is the problem and then you get back onto the potter's wheel. You get back onto the potter's wheel. You say, God, you are the potter. I am the clay. Reshape my heart into the way that you want it to look. Because left to my own, I'm just a prideful, sinful person. And I can't get there. Submit ourselves to God's authority and God's transformation power to transform us by changing the way that we think and trusting Jesus to change our hearts so that he'll change the way that we worship in all areas of our lives. Worship is a unifying process and it is a humbling process. Pride raises us up high, worship brings us down low. Because we say, Jesus, you are worthy of being worshiped. You are worthy of being praised. You are God and I am not. My preferences have to bow to your authority. And we recognize God's power in our life to be the only thing that can change. We say, God, you're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm choosing to put myself back on the potter's wheel. Change me through my worship right now. Some of us expect to go from a daily life where we have no interaction with Jesus, and we have no worship of Jesus, 
and then plop ourselves into church for an hour a week and we expect to change. Or an hour a month. I'm here to tell you today, it doesn't work like that. The good news is that it's not the kind of thing that you strive for. And it feels like you're running through quicksand and you can never really get your footing. The good news is that Jesus has completed the work, but you have to choose to accept it. We can choose whether or not to put ourselves back on that potter's wheel to be changed by God. But I'm telling you right now, if you expect what's happening for this hour this morning to be it for your entire life, we will miserably fail you. You're not designed to worship Jesus just in this space. You're designed to carry the spirit of Jesus with you every single space that you occupy and be changed by his presence and to change the world around you by his presence in your life. And so this morning, I want you guys to get this. I want you to understand this idea of living a lifestyle of worship. But even more than that, we at Centerville Community Church are pursuing the transformation of communities by ensuring that every man, woman, and child has frequent opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that with a church our size and with as many people come through our doors every week, there's some people in this room right now that are hearing my words this morning and all this doesn't really mean anything to you because you don't know Jesus yet. And we don't want to make you feel less than. We don't want to make you feel other or embarrassed. You belong here. We want you to be here. But everything I've talked about this morning is a waste of breath. It is a waste of time if you don't know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. And that's our mission. That's our mission as a church. And you'll see at the end, we are ensuring that every man, woman, and child has frequent opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our definition of worship is any informed response to who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And so we're going to pray and close here in a moment, but I'll ask if you bow your heads and close your eyes so we don't have anyone looking around the room as we pray. But as we close this morning, I want to give that opportunity that if you've never accepted Jesus for the first time, it doesn't have to be this big firework explosion moment where it feels like every single thing in your life has culminated up to this point. It's as easy as saying, yes, I believe. That your life can change forever because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so in a moment, I'm gonna count to three and we're gonna pray. And if that's you this morning, if you want to accept and start a relationship with Jesus for the first time, I would ask if you would just raise your hand. This isn't to embarrass you. This isn't to make you feel less than or to make you feel awkward or weird. But I believe that when you respond on the outside to what's happening on the inside, it becomes that much more real to you. And so on the count of three, if that's you, if you would just raise your hand. One, Jesus loves you so much that he decided to die for you so that you could live in eternity with him. Two, 
I promise your life will never be the same. I can't promise that it will always be easy, but I can promise that Jesus has given you the power to love others well and to live a life honoring him as we move from the rest of this existence and on into eternity. Three, if that's you and you want to make that decision this morning, just raise your hand. We'll pray here in a moment and then we'll close. If you just raise your hand and put it right back down, we'll pray. Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for the yes, for the yeses that happened in this room this morning. God, only you have the power and the authority to change us. God, I pray that you would help us to make that decision to say, yes, I believe and I will change. God, that we can move out of this place and into every space in our lives and be impacted by your gospel and to impact those around us. God, that we can live lives of worship where everything we do or don't do is an informed response to you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for changing us today. It is in your name that we pray, in your name that we sing. Amen.